On Wednesday of this week, uh, at the court of session in Edinburgh, the Scottish government was found to have acted unlawfully when it made it illegal for churches to meet during the lockdown in Scotland. And Lord Braid, who presided over the case, said this, it is impossible to measure the effect of those restrictions on those who hold religious beliefs. It goes beyond mere loss of companionship and an, and, an, and an inability to attend a lunch club. And Willie Phillip, the senior minister at the Tron Church in Glasgow, where Keith's mum incidentally worships, and one of the church leaders who brought the case against the Scottish government, said this after the ruling was announced. He said, however well-intentioned, criminalizing corporate worship has been both damaging and dangerous for Scotland and must never happen again. Now, we've been really blessed, haven't we, here in England, to be able to continue gathering as a church, albeit in a much restricted manner with masks and, and distancing and all that kind of stuff. But we have at least still been able to meet. And we've been really grateful for that. And that's been fantastic. But when you stop and think about the fact that however well-intentioned it might have been, it was actually made a criminal offense for Christians to gather as God's people, as the church, in a part of the UK, that's really quite staggering, isn't it? It's, it's shocking. And we certainly couldn't have imagined 18 months ago that it would be a criminal offense for a church to gather in a part of the UK. So we should give thanks that the court of session in answers to many prayers, we prayed about it here on Sunday mornings and in our prayer meetings, we should give thanks that the court of session has ruled that despite whatever good intentions there may have been behind the law, that it, this was a bad law. It was a law that should never have been put in place. Some laws are good, some laws are bad, but despite whatever good intentions there may have been, this was a bad law. Now, over the last 10 weeks here at Regent, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 20, and we're looking at the Ten Commandments. And, and Paul last week dealt with the final uh, commandment, do not cover. By the way, there is only 10 commandments, okay? There's not an 11th commandment, despite what you might think if you've seen the movie uh, Evan Almighty. We lost our PowerPoint. disappeared. If you've seen the movie Evan Almighty, you'll know that the, the kind of famous line is, thou shalt do the dance. Uh, that isn't the 11th commandment, okay? There are just 10. But in contrast to the bad law that governments sometimes pass, especially this recent criminalizing of churches gathering together as God's people, God's law, the Ten Commandments, and, and all the secondary laws that went with the Ten Commandments that God gave to the people of Israel through Moses, the this law that he gave was and is good. Okay, it is good. The Apostle Paul writes these words in the book of Romans in the New Testament of the Bible, talking about this Old Testament law. This is what he says. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Human laws are often bad. God's law, in contrast, is holy. It's righteous. It's good. And God's law is good because God is good. God is good all the time. And so God's law is good. Paul writes these words uh, in Romans 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem is that though God's law is good, we have a problem. We have something wrong within us that causes a problem, and it's, it's our sin. That's the problem that's deep within us. We've all sinned. We've all come short of God's glory. And every single human being that has ever sinned, with the exception of Jesus, has come short of God's perfect standard, of, of the standard of God's perfection that we find revealed in God's law. 
And as we've seen over the last 10 weeks, we're all guilty of breaking every single one of those commandments. We're all guilty of breaking all of the Ten Commandments. According to what Jesus says about the Ten Commandments, I am guilty of worshipping other gods. I'm guilty of having idols in my life. I'm guilty of misusing God's name. I'm guilty of not honoring my parents. I'm guilty of murder. I'm guilty of adultery. I'm guilty of stealing. I'm guilty of telling lies about other people. I'm guilty of coveting things that belong to other people. I might not have done all of these things in a physical sense, but I certainly have in my heart. And it may be that I'm the only person in the room that is as bad as that this morning. Maybe you guys are all just existing on a higher level than me, but I suspect actually that's not the case. Just in case you think you do or that you are, listen to what the Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And the trouble is that we all stumble at the very, very first commandment, the commandment to worship God. We all stumble immediately. That's the problem. There isn't a human being alive that has loved God with all their heart, strength, and mind, which is another way of stating the first and the second commandments. We've all stumbled immediately. We're like horses running a race, and we've fallen at the first fence. We've immediately fallen over. And so whatever else we may or may not have done in a physical sense, according to God, we're all guilty. We've all blown it. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. We're all guilty. And I think actually that if we're really honest with ourselves in our moments of honesty, we will all admit that actually we have broken all of the Ten Commandments, even if it's not in a full physical sense. We are all guilty of breaking every single one of those commands in our hearts at the very least. So we are all guilty of breaking every one of the Ten Commandments. On your seat, there's an outline and there's various, uh, and, and all the points that are on the screen uh, are on your outlines. If you find that helpful, it's there for you to use this morning. These are good laws because they come from a good God, but they leave us guilty and condemned. That's the problem. Romans six twenty three tells us that the wages of sin is death. And when you go to work for a week, you get your wages, don't you, at the end of the week or at the end of the month. It's what you've earned. You get paid what you've earned. The wages are what we earn for the sins that we commit, all those times that we fall short of this perfect standard of God, all these times when we fail to keep the Ten Commandments and all the other commandments that God gives, all these sub-commandments. The, the, like the paycheck for that, what we earn, what we get as a result of that is death, physical death and spiritual death. Sin brings physical and it brings spiritual death. And spiritual death is basically eternal separation from God. So write that on your outline. Sin brings physical death and sin brings spiritual death. We all die physically. Spiritual death is dying uh, before God in a spiritual sense where we are, are separated from God. That relationship that we were designed to have with God isn't there. It's broken, both in this life and the life to come for all eternity. And that eternal separation culminates according to the Bible, in a person being thrown into what the Bible calls the lake of fire, a place of eternal punishment and condemnation for sin. It might seem that God's law is bad if it causes all this to happen for us. If this is the situation, then God's law must be bad. But the problem isn't the law. The problem is the sin within us. That's what we've already looked at, isn't it? And actually giving God giving the law is actually a real blessing to us because it shows that we're sinners. It reveals us for what we are. It shows that we're incapable of pleasing God by trying to keep laws because every 
time we try, no matter how hard we try, we just don't quite reach that standard, even the very best of people. And so Paul writes these words. He says, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. God's law is good, and it acts like a schoolteacher or a guardian, helping us and showing us the, the fact that we need a solution to this problem of our sin. It, it leads us to Jesus. It leads us to Christ. Despite all the ways that we've rebelled against God, despite failing to do all the things that we should have done, despite choosing to do so many things that we know are wrong, God still loves us. Isn't that amazing? God loves you. And if you forget everything else this morning, remember that God loves you and he loves you with a passion. Can you imagine how you would feel if a person murdered someone close to you? How would you feel towards that person? I doubt that love would be the first emotion that would come to your mind. If somebody murdered your parents or your husband or your wife or one of your children, love would not be a, an instant emotion, would it? It certainly wouldn't be for me. I think if that was me, if I'm honest, it would be hatred, it would be disgust, it would be contempt. That's what I would naturally feel towards someone who murdered someone I knew. And yet the Bible says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, not when we'd become nice and good and all the rest of it, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't wait for us to change. God didn't wait for us to stop sinning. He loved us when we were still sinners, when we were failing to worship God, when we were worshiping other gods or idols, when we were misusing God's name, when we were failing to honor our parents, when we were committing murder, maybe not physically, but within our hearts in, in hatred, when we were committing adultery, when we were stealing, when we were coveting. Christ died for us then when we were still sinners. God hates our sin. He absolutely hates it. It's an abomination to him. Sin is an abomination. It's despicable in God's sight. He, he, it detests it. It's disgusting to him. He hates our coveting. God hates our lying. God hates our stealing. He hates our adultery and sexual immorality. He hates our murder. And he hates all the ways in which we worship other people and other things instead of him. But he loves us. God hates our sin, but he loves us. And he loves us with a passion. And he loves you with a passion. And how did God show us that? God hasn't just said it. He hasn't just said, I love you. How has God demonstrated that? How has God shown us that? He's demonstrated it by sending Jesus, by sending his one and only son, the Lord Jesus, to die on a cross. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This Friday, as Joel was saying earlier, is the day that we call Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross. And one of the Got, um, one of God's prophets to the nation of Israel, writing about 700 years before Jesus actually died on the cross, a man called Isaiah, he wrote these words about Jesus' crucifixion. And we're going to read the whole of Isaiah chapter 53. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to it, it's Isaiah chapter 53, or you can just listen, that's fine. Isaiah 53, I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. This is a, this is a detailed prophecy, a detailed description of Jesus' death on the cross, what happened to him, and what he did there for us. And, but this was written 700 years, amazingly, 700 years before it actually happened. Isaiah writes this, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And he begins to talk about Jesus. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. 
nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet... It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many or make right with God many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's an amazing chapter of the Bible written 700 years before the events. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says this, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. Because God loved you so, so very much, and me so much, he chose to crush his one and only son. The one that he'd been eternally one with for all eternity, the one he loved. And yet he chose to, to crush him, to cause him to suffer through his death on the cross. We're probably all fairly familiar with what physically happened to Jesus on the cross. We're probably all fairly familiar with the, with the events that are recorded in the Bible. First, he was flogged to within an inch, in it, probably about an inch of his death, absolutely brutally flogged by Roman soldiers. Then a crown of thorns was plaited together and, and, and rammed down into his skull. And he was mocked and he was beaten. Then he was forced to carry the crossbeam for his cross until he collapsed under the strain as he made his well as he made his way up the hill of Calvary. Then he was nailed to that cross with nails hammered into his hands and into his feet. And that cross then was lifted upright and probably then dropped into a socket in the ground. Can you imagine the sheer agony of doing that? And Jesus hung and suffered there naked, not nicely clothed with a nice little bit of cloth, naked there on a cross from 9 a.m. in the morning until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, crucified between two common criminals. And as he hung there, the weight of his body would have pulled down. But because of his hands and the pain in his hands and his feet, it would have been unbearable as, he's, as the weight of his body pulled down. But, and because his hands would have been above him, he would have been struggling to breathe and inflate his lungs properly. And so as would happen with crucifixion victims, they would try and push themselves up and pull themselves up to inflate their lungs and breathe so that they didn't uh, suffocate. 
Can you imagine the pain of sort of pushing up with feet that have nails through them and pulling up with hands that have nails through them? Excruciating pain until eventually you'd have to sag down again. And then the whole process would go on like this, alternating between trying to breathe and, and trying to relieve the pain. And this pain went on for six hours. Crucifixion is recognized as being one of the most barbaric ways in which to put a person to death. It's difficult for us to create a more barbaric way, isn't it, really? I mean, how could you find a more barbaric way to to execute somebody? And it's difficult for us to really even begin to imagine the pain and the suffering and the horror of being crucified. But Jesus' crucifixion wasn't unique. There were probably hundreds of thousands of people crucified during the Roman Empire and, and some since by other empires. Hundreds of thousands of people. So Jesus' death in that sense wasn't particularly unique. It was uh, just another crucifixion. But what made Jesus' death unique was what happened at midday. The Bible tells us that from midday until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, it went dark across the whole land. Not just a little bit of darkness, but it went dark right across the whole land, it says. And when the sun should have been at its very brightest, the sun... in some way or other, miraculously didn't shine. God blotted the sun out and darkness descended. And that physical darkness was a very real symbol of what was happening to Jesus spiritually there on the cross. Jesus, the light of the world, was being consumed by the darkness as he hung there on the cross. Paul writes these words about those three hours of darkness. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He was the only human being that has ever lived that kept every single one of God's laws and didn't just keep them, but pleased God in every possible way. Jesus had no sin. And yet, during those three hours of darkness, as he hung there upon the cross, six hours in total and three hours of darkness, God made Jesus become sin itself. God transferred your sin and my sin, and he put it onto Jesus. Jesus was sinless. Let's never forget that. Jesus was utterly sinless, but he became sin. Write that on your outline. Jesus was sinless. He never became a sinner, but he became sin as he hung there on that cross. And then God the Father poured out his wrath, the wrath and anger that he has against your sin and my sin, all those times, all those countless times when we have sinned against God and sinned against other people. The wrath of God against those sins was then poured out, not on me, on you, but poured out on Jesus. We read, we read those words earlier in Isaiah 53. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He interceded, he stepped in, he stepped in our place and made intercession for us. The Apostle Peter, writing in the New Testament, speaking about Jesus, says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The tree is just another way the Bible refers to the cross. So what does all this mean? What does it mean that Jesus became sin? What does it mean that Jesus bore the sin of many? What does it mean then that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree? But during those three hours of darkness, Jesus became all your sin and all my sin. Whilst remaining sinless, Jesus never became a sinner. But whilst remaining sinless, he took on the identity of someone who covets. 
He took on the identity of a liar. Jesus took on the identity of a thief. Jesus took on the identity of an adulterer. Jesus took on the identity of a murderer. Jesus took on the identity of someone who dishonors their parents. Jesus took on the identity of being a Sabbath breaker. He took on the identity of someone who misuses God's name. He took on the identity of being an idol worshiper. He took on the identity of someone who fails to worship God alone. Difficult for us to imagine what that was really like for Jesus, but perhaps thinking of it in this way will help. Jesus was completely and utterly sinless. He was perfect. He hated sin. It revolted him. It disgusts him. It might not disgust us, but it does disgust him. Sin is the very polar opposite of everything that Jesus was and is. It's difficult to state how strongly, how completely opposite Jesus is to sin. Complete polar opposite, north to south. And yet, Jesus became that very thing, which is the complete opposite of who he is. The very thing that he detests the most in the world. Stop for a minute and think of the one sin that revolts you and angers you and disgusts you the most. Think of that sin. Think of that sin that just makes you so angry, just revolts you, just disgusts you. Might be different for different people. Let me give you an example, and, 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 and one I don't make lightly, but I hope it makes the point. I think probably the most disgusting and repugnant sin that I can think of is a person who abuses children. It's probably the one crime that everybody is totally revolted by and, and is disgusted by. Now work with me on this one. I, I, I'm not going to ask you to imagine becoming a child abuser for a day because you can't, can you? Why would you want to imagine becoming that? out of our ability to imagine because it's so hideous it's so disgusting it's so opposite to 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 who we are what why would you want to do that we wouldn't want to to actually have to become and to, to to be known as that person and then to carry the guilt and the shame of being that thing and, and have in your head filled with all those thoughts and all those things that you've done the very thing that repulses you the most imagine your head being filled with all of those wrong things you have done. Imagine walking down the street and everybody knows that's what you are. Everybody knows that you are that thing, that most despicable of of all things. And everybody knows every single sordid, disgusting, repulsive fact about you. That's what happened to Jesus on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Jesus suffered the psychological pain of bearing our guilt. Write that on your outline. Jesus suffered the psychological pain of becoming the very thing that was so opposite and disgusting and hated by him. He became it. He bore our guilt. Jesus, the perfect sinless one in dying for us, had to carry the weight and the guilt of all the sin in your life, all of those things that you are deeply ashamed of. All those things that I'm deeply ashamed of. All those things I would not want anyone else to know about. Jesus became sin, became my sin, became your sin. All those things that revolt and disgust you and definitely revolt and disgust him. Things that you might not think are so bad, but but Jesus, the Holy One, the one is the very opposite of sin. To him, it is repugnant. To him, even the smallest of sins in our mindset is the same for him to become that, is the same as for us to become the very worst thing that we can think of, and actually more so. And Jesus even died for child abusers. 
We can't imagine taking on the guilt and the shame of that, but he chose to. Jesus became guilty of all our sins, even though he never sinned. And as Jesus bore our sins and as he carried the weight and guilt of everything that repulsed him and became sin for us, his unique relationship, his eternal unique relationship with his father was in some way changed as he hung there on the cross for these few hours of darkness. Mark 15, 34 says this, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the end of this three hours of darkness, the Jewish ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. in our timing, Jesus cried out to his father, only he didn't call him father, now he calls him God. To become the very thing that you loathe most is bad enough for a sinless, perfect son of God. But then to be in some way forsaken or, or abandoned by God is beyond anything we can imagine. God can't have a relationship with someone who's full of sin. And as Jesus voluntarily took our sins upon himself, God could no longer have fellowship with his son. In, in some way that we will never be able to understand or, or fully grasp, Jesus suffered abandonment at the hands of a holy God. In, in some way, he was forsaken by his father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't call him father anymore. He calls him God. Somehow this relationship has altered. There's a, there's a distance. There's something happened. In those three hours of darkness, the eternal intimacy of God the Father and God the Son has in some way changed, and now there's some distance. But if that wasn't enough, God the Father, God the one who's full of justice, then poured out his wrath upon the sins of all who've ever lived and ever would live on Jesus. 1 John 4 verse 10 says this, This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The technical term that the NIV translates atoning sacrifice is propitiation, and it simply means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath completely and in doing so changes God's wrath to favor. A sacrifice that bears God's wrath completely and in doing so changes God's wrath to favor. God is a God of justice and holiness, and he wouldn't be God if he didn't punish our sins completely and totally. And so Jesus in order to square the circle of God's love and God's justice, God sends Jesus and Jesus offers his life instead of ours. We read those words in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Jesus suffered the wrath of God. He allowed himself to bear the wrath of a holy and a perfect God until all of our sin was punished and was dealt with. And once he had absorbed God's wrath on our behalf, God was able to look upon us with favor instead of wrath. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, and that's the big if. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, God is no longer looking at us with wrath. God is looking upon us with favor. Let's look again at 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that what? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sins upon himself. 
so that if and when we put our faith and trust in him, he gives to us his righteousness. Not only does faith in Jesus bring forgiveness, it's the means by which God gives us the same position that Jesus has with God. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus this morning, then when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin anymore. Instead, he sees his own righteousness, his own perfection, his own holiness. Paul says in Romans 3.22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. That's how we get God's righteousness, through faith in Jesus. And if you've trusted in Jesus, then no matter how much of a failure you might feel this morning, no matter how sinful you might feel, no matter what you have done, no matter what you will yet do, God simply sees Jesus when he looks at you. And he's not just seeing Jesus covering you, but actually underneath the covering of Jesus, you're still a dirty, rotten sinner. That's not biblical. God has given you a new heart, a new identity. The old life is the old life. That's finished. We are new people right to the very cause of our being. So through faith in Jesus, God now views us as being as holy and as perfect and as righteous as Jesus. We have God's righteousness. Staggering, isn't it? It's, it's amazing. But you know that in the New Testament, Christians are never referred to as sinners. Why? Because that's what we were, but not any longer. Now, in and through Jesus, we are referred to as saints, as holy ones. We are the righteousness of God. I've got God's righteousness, not because of anything I've done or deserved, but because of Jesus. I've got God's righteousness. Right to the very core of my being, I am born again. I'm a new person. The old has gone and the new has come. Our identity has changed. We were sinners. It was when we were still sinners that Christ died for us. But now we're no longer sinners in God's eyes. We are saints. We are holy ones. That is your identity. Lots of you are sitting there thinking, I can't accept that. I'm, I'm, I'm not holy. You might not be in your behavior, but you are as God sees you this morning. That is what the Bible teaches. We still sin. Of course we do. But our identity, our fundamental nature has changed, and we are now saints. We are now God's holy people. If you're like me, then you're probably all too well aware that of, of all the different ways in which you do sin against God, all those things you know you shouldn't do, but you choose to do anyway, and all those ways in which you fail to do the things that you know you should do, despite your new identity, despite how God views you. Jesus said the whole of God's law could be summed up by this, love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. And we have God's love demonstrated by Jesus on the cross for those countless times that we've not loved God and not loved our neighbor. This morning, if there's never been a time in your life when you admitted to God that you are a sinner, if there's never been a time when you've asked him to forgive you and asked him to give you that eternal life and that whole new identity and make you into a new person and, and fill you with his Holy Spirit and turn away from your sin. If you've not done that, then why not take that step today? Why not come into the good of all that we've talked about this morning, whether you're in the room here or whether you're at home watching, to admit who you are before God, someone who is filled with sin, and yet to come to Jesus and say, well, Jesus, thank you that you died there for me. Thank you for taking the punishment for my sin. Please forgive me. Please fill me with your spirit, and I want to live for you. Maybe you have trusted in Jesus, but you know that you've let him down. You're all too well aware of your failings. Maybe you've made a mess of things lately. Maybe you've been living by that old identity rather than by your new identity. 
And if that's you, don't let Satan keep you down on the floor. Get back up, reconnect with Jesus, and give thanks that you're not only forgiven, but you are righteous like Jesus. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is is 1 John 2 verse 1, which says this, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, then we're not supposed to sin anymore. John says, I write this to you so that you will not sin but we all know we do. But when we do, we have Jesus acting like a defense lawyer in heaven, representing us before the Father, reminding, pleading the Father uh, before the Father, pleading our case, reminding the Father that Jesus has already dealt with our sin, that we are righteous because of Jesus. And so despite our sin, God says, sin, what sin? I don't see any sin. I just see the righteousness of my son, Jesus. That's what God sees when he looks at me. That's what he sees when he looks at you. No matter how much a mess you might make of things from time to time, day by day. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't that phenomenal? God's grace, God's mercy, truly amazing. Paul says this in Romans 12, verse 1, as he comes to the end of kind of outlining this, this, this great good news, spending 11 chapters doing it. He gets to chapter 12 and he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of all, that, all this that God has done for us, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual or your reasonable, your logical act of worship. The very least we can do is to then live, isn't it, for God after all that he's done for us. As we, as we go into this week and perhaps in a way that we do, perhaps in a way even more than normal, we think about crucifixion and what Jesus did there for us in view of God's mercy let's offer our bodies not just today not just this week but all of our bodies all of our lives as as living sacrifices I've broken every one of the ten commandments and to my shame I continue to do so and so I'm so grateful for Jesus I'm so grateful that the one who fulfilled God's law in every minor detail took my place went to the cross, became my substitute sacrifice, became my sin, absorbed God's wrath on my behalf, forgives me, and has given me his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're in awe and wonder this morning at, at this wonderful good news at the gospel. We're in awe and we're in wonder at your love, that you loved us so much, that you would do this for us. Lord, there's so much we don't understand. There's so much that's beyond our comprehension. But in simple faith, we come this morning and we we believe that, Lord Jesus, that you died there for us. We thank you for it. We praise you for what you've done for us. Thank you that we are the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. Not through any good works of our own, but simply because of your love and of your grace. We give you thanks. Amen.